there and welcome to Market, a podcast that explores the dynamic world of marketing, community, and culture, and explores how these elements intersect to build amazing brands. This is a show where we talk to marketers about their journeys and their secrets to success. Before we begin today's episode, we wanted to remind you to head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe to Market, so you get notified when episodes go live. This podcast is brought to you by Right Sleeve, an award-winning promotional products agency located in the heart of Toronto. We believe in the power of branded merchandise to create emotional connections with brands. So connect with us online at rightsleeve.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rightsleeve. I'm Rhea Lupton, Marketing Manager at Rightsleeve. Enjoy the show. So let's just start off with giving a little introduction about yourself, who you are. Okay. Um, Melissa Serafodine. I am one of the co-founders and, and now CEO of Canva Learning Code. I'll give you a little bit of my background, kind of a windy journey, just so you have an idea. I taught myself to code, was making websites on a fun platform called GeoCities, if anyone remembers, and Neopets. Yes. Okay. And so I taught myself when I was 11 or 12. My family got its first computer, and I really just spent two entire summers against my parents' wishes, just like building things. And then I went into high school and I took computer science in grade nine. I did well. I think I got one of the top marks. But my uh, teacher at the time was like, great, like you did well, like that was awesome. We'll, we'll see you around. And my school actually had computer science up into grade 12 and it had a whole stream. And so he never encouraged me, although I was really good at math and science and I loved, loved coding at the time, never you know, encouraged me to pursue it. So I did, you know, what my parents wanted, which was either become a dentist or go into business, and I chose business. Uh, so I went to business school at Western. I did my studies in accounting. So I ended up at Deloitte here in Toronto in about 2010, and very soon after starting my career in accounting, I ended my career in accounting because I just hated it. Nothing against it, very important. I do it all the time now, but uh, for me, I just wanted something different. And so I quit, I didn't have a plan, I didn't have a job lined up, and that's when I got really, really immersed in the tech community here in Toronto. So I was going to tons of events, tons of meetups, tons of breakfasts like this, and that's also where I met some of the other co-founders of, of Ladies Learning Code at the time. And so we really just wanted to become more technical ourselves. I especially just wanted to be able to build more, especially you know having an interest in tech and wanting to just build something. I figured those were good skills to develop. And so I wanted to learn, and that's really how we got started. Um, many of you have been to a program, kind of know the story, just caught on like wildfire from there. But it was really scratching for me my own itch, uh, wanting to become more more technical. Tell us a little bit more about Ladies Learning Code. Which year did it start in? Mm. And how many people were there in the founding team? Yeah, so we started... Uh, with a brainstorming session actually so we did it a little bit differently we didn't really know what we were what it, this was going to be and so heather and i actually organized a brainstorming session um in july of 2011 and i always tell a story we thought there'd be like 10 12 people at a starbucks and it ended up being 80 people so we had to rent out uh, the center for social innovation and so we brought a group of people together at that first session we said okay if we wanted to you know have a bunch of learning code opportunities for women in Toronto, what would that look like, who wants to be part of that, and it was from there that we kind of identified a kind of core driving team, and we committed at that brainstorming session for exactly one month later to run our first workshop, 
and that workshop was an intro to JavaScript, August 6, 2011. Uh, it sold out in a day, and then a month later, sold out in seven minutes, and then the month after, it was 30 seconds. And then from there, we just had so much like early momentum for workshops and for the work that we were doing. What do you think it was? Like, what led to that? Like, it does become, for those of you who don't know what Ladies Learning <coughs> Code or now yeah. Canada Learning Code is, it's quite the movement, and you've, like, you know, yeah. grown across Canada in a short, I, would, I wouldn't say it's a short time, like, it's, it feels like, uh, oh, it's been a few years. It's, like, weird. Days are long, years are short. Uh, yeah, so we run, so I should have explained this, too, in my, like, long journey, but we run workshops, camps, after-school programs, courses for basically all Canadians to learn technical skills. So coding is one part, but we do Photoshop or, you know, SEO, SEM, we do digital skills. And so I think there's a couple of things that were really part of that early interest and momentum. The first, I think, was A, we brought the community together to kind of help solve for this need. And then I think the second really important thing, and this I think is really relevant as you're starting any type of business or endeavor, is you know, being like having that problem yourself. So I think because the founding team specifically were all also our kind of target, you know, market or target customer, we were really able to design early on experiences that spoke to us, which then spoke to the other men and women who attended our programs. And so I think because we were like it was a problem that we had and we were solving something that we knew super well. Um, it was really easy early on to build these really awesome experiences. And that, that's, you know, changed and there's ways of now, you know, incorporating that same spirit as you move forward. But I think because we were, again, scratching our own itch, it resonated with people across the country. And at what point did you realize that this was an organization rather than a volunteer group or like a meetup or something? Yeah. So we started running things uh, in July 2011 and then it, by January we incorporated as a not-for-profit organization so it took the math's bad but what like six months to really think through and then even then in January we didn't have a full-time team we were starting to have part-time team so Heather and Laura actually were the first to kind of they were you know freelancing already so they kind of were able to take it on and then I actually didn't join and take over full-time until 2013 so it was a side hustle for a couple of years for me until we could build the base of our own revenue plus sponsors donors partners um, that it could be a point where we could have you know full-time team and then from that point we were able to scale pretty quickly to where we are now when did you get your first round of funding sponsorship yeah. that was significant and not like five hundred dollars here yeah. and there it was definitely in like 2013 so i think before that we had tons and tons of community support lots of in-kind sponsorship or partnership but that doesn't really pay people's bills like it helped run our workshops but it was 2013 actually it was microsoft one of our key sponsors who came on board and gave us a pretty substantial grant that would kind of float us for you know at least the better part of six months which was enough in our eyes and for me especially to to know that we could kind of find, figure out the rest because we even now like we don't have we have a plan but like you know six months is pretty good for us and it's a not-for-profit to have you know a window and then we're you know always constantly working for for what's next and just to give you an idea too we've doubled in our operating budget almost every single year and right now like our operating budget as an org is over two million dollars a year and we've more than doubled our impact every single year so we went from like one workshop or a couple workshops a year to a national not-for-profit organization that runs programs in 32 cities now across the country 
How do you measure impact for something like this? Just numbers or is there more to it? Yeah, we're increasingly trying to focus on making data-driven decisions. So I think because the team and actually most of our team to date don't have a traditional not-for-profit background, we might come from other industries. I came from accounting, as you know, you know, we're trying to apply a lot of the same principles that any, you know, business could use. So number of learners is one thing, you know, easy enough to measure, like, are we reaching, you know, people where we want to and the amount of people we want to, we try to dive even deeper and we look at some of the more qualitative findings. So we do annual surveys and we survey after every program to really start to identify whether, you know, people feel more confident when they leave our programs, uh, whether people use what they've learned, you know, personally or professionally, you know, people that go on to pursue more learning. So we're trying to track that as a success measure, but we're also trying to track or we do track and measure more, I don't say like typical business metrics because that not necessarily true, every business is a business, but things like cost per learner. So for us, we want to know, are we becoming more efficient every single year that we deliver programs to people? And we want to know what programs, you know, cost what for, for reach so that we can really maximize how we're investing our energy. So, you know, what cost used to be maybe a couple hundred dollars a learner, you know, in one of our programs is now at about $60 a learner. And so we know that over time we've been able to reach some synergies and we're able to invest and reach more learners with the same amount of money. So things like that we're using to measure our efficiency and our success. And then ultimately, like, are we reaching people are they getting something out of it? Are we moving the needle, you know, as an industry? And so we also look to a lot of industry research that's happening too. And in terms of people pursuing tech careers after taking these courses and such, or like going to school for a degree or something like that, mm -hmm. is that measured mainly on self-reporting? Yeah, we have a few ways of doing that. So self-reporting, we're actually in the midst of a really big study right now to look back kind of from the beginning of time. We also look to places like boot camps and to see you know, what their relationship is with the learners from our programs. So HackerU, for example, started at, by the same team, is run largely independently. You know, For example, last year, I think 40% of the women in its program came through a ladies learning code workshop. So we can also see through some of these other partners what the referral is into other programs. Are you mainly sponsored like as a not-for-profit? Yeah. And how do you stay true to your mission when Fund, you know how funding needs are. You have mm -hmm. like a certain organization funding you, yeah. say a bank or something. Like, yeah. How do you stay true to your own organization and what you started out with? Early on, it was really critical to us that we had some amount of money that we generated ourselves. We liked that to be larger than it, it was, but as our mission grew. So when we first started, we were only running ladies programs, adult programs, and there are a lot of costs and expenses that go into running workshops. So we said, you know, from day one, we'll charge a reasonable amount, we'll make scholarships available, but we'll try to cover our own cost as much as possible. So those who can pay, pay, and those who can't, we find a way to make it work. And that at the beginning was actually a pretty decent amount of revenue for our organization to kind of sustain itself and to sustain its programs. And then we would bring in sponsors to kind of cover the, the difference, right? But then as our mission evolved and grew and as we started introducing programs like Girls Learning Code or Kids Learning Code or Teens Learning Code, there was less room and less opportunity for charging to 
to kind of recover costs. And so we needed to go out to sponsors more often. So what started at maybe 60% of our own budget becoming self-generated, we're maybe at 30% now, but that's still a core amount and it's actually shifted. So now we kind of generate to cover our overhead and our partners and sponsors help us to do programs and activities. We've also really evolved our mission to focus on reaching kind of underrepresented groups and that's, you know, a broad, a broad, you know, bucket. But, you know, when we go into communities that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, those programs are free. Sometimes they're harder to get to the location wise, so they're actually more costly. And that's where partners and sponsors come in to help us cover those costs. So we're about like 30% self-funded through camps and, you know, What are sponsors ever like do this and not that? Okay, so I didn't speak to that part. Yeah, so that's the second piece. So we also learned really early on that not all money is the same. So we at first were, I don't want to say like desperate, but, you know, you jump, jump off this cliff and you quit your job or, you know, you have multiple people who've left and joined you and you, you know, need to pay bills, you need to keep the lights on, you know, people have houses and families and this and that. So you, when money presents itself, there's a tendency to want to take it. And so early on, the first few years, at least, you know, 2012, 2013, we were applying for grants right, left and center, especially those that seemed like they would be fruitful and what ended up happening is that we would apply for things or we'd reach out to partners and sponsors and we didn't account for the fact that to be able to fit in with their you know criteria or the grant objectives it would actually mean creating you know a new program or changing the way we run something and so it actually ended up being a lot more work and a lot more costly than the grant that we applied for to be able to fulfill the requirements of the grant. Sponsors, depending on how they're structured, often you could pitch them what you wanted to do. And so we kind of made that move. And so instead of applying for any grant, we only apply now for grants to do things that we plan to do. So have to be a lot more focused there and, and strategic, because if you weren't planning to do it, even though you bring the money in, there are those costs associated with it plus the opportunity cost of all the things that you were going to do that you didn't get funded and it's just a, a mess. So we really try to, again, only apply and seek for funding for things that we had planned. Mm-hmm. And sponsors are generally a little bit more flexible. So you have the room to go to them and say, here, this is what I want to do. Like, can you help make this happen? And then having some element of self-generated cash allows you to kind of just make up the difference of things that might not be sponsorable, so mm-hmm. to speak. What's the hardest thing you've had to deal with as an entrepreneur? What was your hardest day as an entrepreneur? Oh my gosh, like every other day is hard. The highs are really, really high and the lows are really, really low, I would say, like as an entrepreneur, which is one thing that you hear maybe, but you don't really realize. Uh, the hardest things for me, like early on, we, you know, we've had our bumps, ups and downs and, you know, Coding, I think, is very much having a moment right now or the last year, but the years prior, it was very, very different from a funding climate or even just people understanding the importance and and need. So you're really often having to like explain why this is important. Now people are like, okay, got it. Let's figure out if we can support you. So I think the single probably toughest day for me is we had to like restructure a team and unfortunately let a few people go. That was by far the worst. Like I 
I made myself sick for sure for days because you're really agonizing over that type of decision. Nobody wants to do it, you know, for whatever reason, funding and like priorities, like that's the worst. Also really awesome people, like just, you just can't make it work for them and they have families and lives. The positive side on that is that it always, it always seems to work out in the end. And I keep in touch with those individuals and, you know, they're doing amazing things still in the space. But I think that's the hardest is having to make those really tough decisions as they impact your team Mm -hmm. and like having to be like, oh, like you didn't make that work kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. That was probably the hardest. And then every other day there's something else that's tough about running a business whether it's like this thing didn't come through or you had these you know crazy wild dreams or you um you know applied for funding you didn't get it or if you know you count on specific funding and their priorities change their deadlines move yeah like I could just list all of the things so Canada Learning Code has done really (coughs) really well uh how many cities are you guys in right now we're in 32 right now I should have said folks not guys I just learned that yesterday So 32 cities, but do you still hear no? Or has someone ever told you this is stupid? You had a job? Like to me? To you, to your team? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I get like coding for sure is having its moment, Mm -hmm. but I think the more spotlight that is turned to the work that we're doing, the more you hear from both sides. So yeah, we've definitely heard and seen and read about viewpoints where coding is important or like, we don't need to learn to code because you know robots are just going to code for us and you know it's not going to be an important skill and yeah there's definitely a lot of that and fair i mean i think when i see or hear or read about that i'm like okay like clearly we have more work to do to educate everyone on why the work that we're doing is important and also to expand people's understanding of what it is that we're doing. Mm. And so while coding, like the language, you know, Python or HTML and CSS, or, you know, that might, like, might not be relevant in a couple years. Like, sure, you could speak into your app and have it build a website for you, I think probably already. I haven't mm. checked lately. But, <laughs> but that's a thing that's not far off. But what we're trying to teach people is that, Yes, a little bit of like how to build your own website, but it's actually more about a way of thinking and that I firmly believe is resilient to whatever happens in the future. And I think that way of thinking and problem solving and being able to leverage technology, being able to not fear it is a really important thing. I think that's what's going to future proof us in, in, in the future future proof us (laughs) full stop so i think that's that's what we're trying to do so when when you hear things like oh coding isn't going to exist okay yeah it might not but we're actually trying to teach something broader than just coding it's computational thinking and so i always joke like canada learning computational thinking is like not the same ring and also coding for a whole host of reasons that actual word has a lot of i guess brand recognition as well now like i think people understand what that means when we first started, this is a funny story. When we first started Ladies Learning Code, we were using the hashtag, hashtag Ladies Learning Code. And it actually got picked up on Twitter because we, we would trend and, and people would find it. And people actually thought it was like the female version of like bro code, like this silent code, you know, between people. And we're like, what? Like, no, it's, we thought for sure it was computer programming. <laughs> like people got that. But early on, people just didn't like, have that in their their vocabulary or they weren't thinking about it in the same way as they are now so just kind of an interesting anecdote like the 
the tweets were out of this world. But it's one of those things where I think we've gotten to a place where people understand code or they, it's a word that they recognize, but it's actually so much broader and deeper than that. And so now we're trying to you know, really educate people on what we mean by coding and computational thinking mm -hmm. as part of that. How do you stay grounded as an entrepreneur? Because I feel like with a lot of entrepreneurs, patience can run low. Yeah, I'm not. I'm like always high. like, okay. <laughs> um, I've always seen you very calm, like oh, all yeah. the time. I mean, I think the work, it's not hard with, with the work that, that I do. And I think for so many people, if you actually find a problem that you're really passionate about solving, it's not hard to find like awesome things every day about the work that you do. So as low as the days can get or as stressful, like right now I'm in a period of like, it feels like insurmountable stress, especially going into the end of the year. But you know, this weekend we did an awesome new workshop and we had, you know, 20 kids come in and girls and they built like this cute website about saving bees. And like, it's not hard to find ways that your work is impacting people. And, you know, it's not brain surgery or, you know, like I think the work that we're doing, you know, even if there's challenges or even if something slightly goes wrong, like I think there's there's lots of room like for for failure to learn from it. And so I don't really see anything as like make or break. Like I think they're all learning opportunities. And then again, there's no shortage of things that are quick wins, I call them, that you can use and point to for the work that you're doing. I also do yoga you know, mm -hmm. a fair bit and CrossFit. I was and like hoping other you'll talk about that because you're a certified <coughs> yoga trainer. Yeah, yeah. I haven't taught in a long time, but I think you have to find the stuff outside of the work that you do as well that grounds you. So I used to teach yoga. It was yoga for a long time. I still do it. Now it's CrossFit. And people are like, that's, they're very polar opposites. But I feel like it's kind of an energy that I want to bring or I need into the work that I do. So I felt like there was a time where everything was super, super chaotic and yoga really helped ground me and it, it still does, but I also feel like other forms of physical activity speak to you in other ways. So I think that's, you know, an important part, spending time with friends and family. Mm -hmm. Like I never, I love to host. I don't like cooking, but I like to host. You know, and, and just really keeping yourself surrounded with other things is important. That's why there's takeout. Yes, yeah. Or my husband's a chef, so I <laughs> That's just amazing. have him. <laughs> Let's talk about your team. At what <coughs> point did you bring your first hire? And mm -hmm. this is a two-parter. Okay, you're an entrepreneur. This is your baby, right? Mm -hmm. How do you keep your team motivated? So when I start, took over in 2013, so I was you know working on laser and code on the side part-time, but I had other jobs. I didn't even go into them, but I was doing a whole bunch of other things. And then the reason why I made the leap to join full-time and kind of take over from there was because I saw this opportunity to scale across the country. And so that was about a year-ish in when we saw that opportunity and we launched our first chapter and then, you know, kind of grew from there. And so for us, the approach to scaling or to build, bringing team on at the time was that we would identify those people who would kind of come to us to start in their communities and they'd build out the case for why we'd want our programs in that place you know they would kind of identify a lot of those entrepreneurial characteristics or the entrepreneurial spirit of starting stuff in their in their community and so that's kind of how we identified where we would go it was people based on people as opposed to saying you know we want to be in Kelowna BC like let's go out and find someone we really let you know, community leaders come forth to help us identify where to go. 
our approach is different now as we grow our teams in those places and we want to you know be very much an equal opportunity employer like we really try to focus on engaging as many different perspectives but early on when we were positioning you know where we would grow it was by community demand and interest how does that go with growth like you have some growth plans right yeah. and then if you keep waiting for people yeah. to come to you yeah so this is a good this is a good question and so i think you know to the motivation piece or like building on that we over the last little while have had to really shift so when we first started we were just like we had so much interest and demand we were still trying to figure things out we were always growing and doubling every year but i think you know doubling a two-person team is a lot easier than a 50-person team or now we're at 115 people so it becomes a little bit different in the and the kind of challenges are different as well so i think you know now the shift is away from letting you know that what is it inbound approach mm -hmm. and now identifying those communities that we go to but we still really look for in every place that we go or every person those kind of key characteristics that entrepreneurial spirit kind of community building passion for technology so we're still able to find individuals that are true to our core values but you know we may put a posting up in that community we might reach out to that those community leaders or identify you know groups that might have a, a community that would relate with ours and then the motivation piece I think as you as a volunteer largely volunteer driven organization and a not-for-profit organization you know most of our team say like everyone is very very motivated by the work that we do as opposed to a pay not as a paycheck but kind of some financial upside it's really like what is the impact they run these workshops in their communities we all do this work because we really want to see impact um, and so it's a different way of motivating necessarily and especially when people do this outside of their full-time jobs I think the important thing again is like grounding everything and focusing everything in the work that we do and then we've also taken the approach of making it super easy for anyone in our team across the country to do the things that they love and so we've tried to centralize like a franchise I guess um, centralize like the things that people don't want to do like the admin or like managing Eventbrite or finances and bookkeeping expenses like all of that stuff we've tried to centralize you know out of headquarters team so that our our chapter community can just focus on like creating these amazing experiences and building out that community which really speaks to their entrepreneurial desires their community building and so you know everyone's time is super super limited how can we free up that team to be focusing on just the things they love. And then at headquarters, we've got amazing operations people who just love operations. And so they're super happy to like manage the operations of all of these chapters. And so trying to like really leverage people's strengths. And then we've really built the structure in a way that supports that to help people keep motivated because they're able to do the work that they want to do and, and see the impact that they want to have by employing this kind of franchise centralized decentralized structure so in retrospect are there things that you would be doing differently if you started Canada learning code today hmm. or is I mean, everything perfect I mean th I would not say things are perfect but like no regrets right okay. I think they're I don't know I feel pretty happy like we've made lots of little hiccups and we've learned for it from it but I think every little hiccup that we've made as tough or difficult as it is has led you on a different path yeah I think that's the important part of like having that perspective of learning and so we've got this kind of internal 
motto mostly mine which is like launch fast fail fast iterate faster and this you know one of our core values is is that is like taking action and and you know learning from it and so i i wouldn't i there's no one specific thing aside from maybe you know like trying to hustle a little harder or like you know being a little bit more proactive on you know partnership relations or you know not applying for those grants that we you know really hurt us but even that we learned from like if we didn't have those mistakes or challenges or like missteps we might be doing misstepping now so from that perspective like no mm. no regrets has the culture evolved for your team and at large with the franchises too yeah our chapters didn't call it a franchise yeah it sounds like mcdonald's i know it's not something. a franchise but it's a good way of i think ex- explaining sort of the the model for those who understand we're we're going through that right now and maybe the last year and i think as we go forward and we grow so for the longest time you know like i interviewed every prospective chapter lead and i would bring them on and i would work with them and i would meet with them regularly and we would chat you know as frequently as needed but i only have so many hours in the day and now there's finance and accounting and there's like marketing stuff that has to happen and fundraising and like ops and our team is growing and so i think there's this interesting thing that happens as a leader and as a company that trying to engage more people to support so those things that i was doing and there i guess there's a saying that the leader's strengths are like the organization's weakness or something and so i think there's like certain gaps within the organization they what say does that, that mean? <laughs> so the things that like maybe i've held on to really tightly so growing our chapter community and working with our chapter leads you know there's a point where it's really hard to have 32 meetings every week um with your chapter leads right or or every month or even every two months is really challenging to have that that type of involvement and commitment and so i think there's a like level of expectation or you know our teams at least the kind of og team right now like our original team they're really used to that and so we're really having to shift away and and how they interact with us and how they interact together and and how processes exist are really really starting to change as we scale yeah mm-hmm. now so what would have been still largely unsustainable probably for most people the first few years you know when you had 5 or 10 chapters you know now that you've 30 and we're trying to operate in some of the same ways is really big pointing out i think potential weaknesses within the organization right and so how do you build processes for that if we want to be you know 60 chapters you know can't be me probably can't even be another person like there's got to be a different way that we tackle that and how do you communicate that change manage that change you know how do you especially for people who were in the organization early on like how does that impact them and the way that they see themselves in the org and so trying to tackle some of those how does things it impact right now them? like how how have their behaviors changed over time that's a good question i should probably like survey more don't i think <laughs> no i think you you see that in like i think for so many people especially the early the early team members this is very much their baby as well and at a local level even more so so our chapter leads who maybe run programs in edmonton or berry or in you know uh fredericton like this is their baby in their in their communities as well and so now when you you know change how things are done or you encourage them to grow a team things just 
change, right? So, you know, there could be this lack of clarity. There could be this, you know, feeling of, I don't want to say control, but like lack of control or uncertainty and ambiguity. And I think those are like probably the most common feelings. As you grow, like everyone's still happy, I think, to do the really important work. But when you were doing something one way and then all of a sudden it's different and, you know, you were really happy doing it this one way, change is just like very hard for, I think, anyone. So these are things that, you know, smaller changes have happened as we've grown and evolved. And we've always tried to think about scale but you just can't avoid change mm-hmm. when you're you know growing and you know at such a at such a pace or really just growing mm-hmm. at all so be honest about this one. yeah you guys started pretty early and then there are like a lot of other things in like the coding space mm-hmm. there are like this learning code or mm-hmm. that learning code or something who <laughs> code how did that feel yeah we like have a bunch of the learning codes in our family like comp- competition yeah competition but not really like they're all community driven mm-hmm. organizations like how did that feel like you were already in the city you're established mm-hmm. and then another organization comes in how how was that how mm-hmm. did you did you collaborate yeah did you were you like oh that will die out <laughs> no <laughs> no so or so i'm trying to like think back to some of the first early ones interestingly enough a lot of the competitors that joined or or started many of them actually were started in other places so not even in Canada so I think about if I did name some of our biggest competitors they might not even be Canadian organizations Mm -hmm. and then and that was on the adult side so women who code or I guess girls who code to some extent so that was great I mean I think they provided such a big platform for this work and have been really instrumental along with all the groups in just helping shape the narrative of coding so when there was just one group trying to say like promote the fact that this stuff was important and now there's like 10 or 20 like it creates an ecosystem or it creates like a bigger market in that way and then a lot of the other groups that have popped up are very local or speaking to a specific community which I think is great and so we have partnered with a lot of groups or we support a lot of groups you know Brilliant Labs is one that's focused just on the Atlantic Maritime provinces there's another that's focused you know maybe just in Calgary Chic Geek and so we've been able to partner and work with them What's also interesting is that there are very few organizations in Canada, at least, that are doing the exact same thing for the same community. And I think that is if you look to Microsoft and Google and Apple and like these other organizations, like there's a niche that people carve for themselves. And I think having that in mind and knowing what you're out to do is what's important. So there's plenty of work. Like I've always been a big believer that there is like enough work and even funding and things that we might compete on to go around it's just a matter of figuring out like what you do and sticking to what you do and then like you're not really worrying about what anyone else is Mm -hmm. is doing yeah what have you learned about building a movement i know you said it grew organically and there were 80 people the first time but not a lot of us have you know Mm -hmm. turnouts like that yeah so how in retrospect what are some of the key lessons that you've learned about building communities and a movement yeah movement I mean like it has to be about the community and you have to engage the community in it like you know I sit here and I'm talking about our work but like by no means was it just me like by any like there's no stretch of the imagination that that was true like it's been hundreds and hundreds of people thousands actually I think probably if you're gonna count that have helped us shape and build and so that I think is the most important part is recognizing that you don't 
you can't even have all the answers nor should you want to have all the answers and that if you ask people for help or engage people in meaningful ways leverage people's strengths I think that's where that momentum comes from is that day one even like that brainstorming session it wasn't like hey we want to start this thing like we know what the answers are it's like okay community like what do you think how how should we shape this involving them and then that's the same spirit that we take to every chapter every community you can get involved in so many ways and so even if you just come out once like one time and you never get involved again like by being at that workshop there's so much value and information that we can gather to make our programs different so if you you know one mentor filling out one feedback survey one time with like an amazing piece of feedback like we look at all of that and it can really shape the work that we're doing so I think just the community part and hearing from the community you know taking that feedback is really important before ladies in candle learning code I worked in kind of franchise worlds and in customer service and retail and you know I used to always say like you're so lucky if you get any kind of feedback often if you you know you go to Starbucks you go and you hate it and like you you know never come back like that's not useful to Starbucks what's useful is if you complain and then you have an opportunity to make your product your experience or whatever it might be better so we really value like from day one we've always done feedback surveys and other mechanisms for people to share information and we read them I actually still read in batches all all of the feedback just because that's where you're going to hear how you can improve the work that you're doing and so in that way especially the org has been built by like every single person who has left a feedback survey at least i think this is a good juncture to kind of take questions from people if you have any i have more questions but we would take some questions from people now. I'd love to hear about your evolution from just the name uh, Ladies Learning Code and the yeah. organization focused around that to, to Canada Learning Code. Yeah. So, I, again, I always like tell a story. So if you've heard it before, I apologize. But we started Ladies and then about a year, not even a year in, but, you know, about we had interest from younger girls. But also we realized that if we were going to, like, really make a dent, we had to start younger than women who had careers and mortgages and families and you know many of them wanted to change careers or were interested but like to change that in a big way we needed to start younger and then we would have parents who have sons who'd be like well like where do they fit into the program so we launched kids then our girls became teens so we have teens learning code and then we had teachers who would like sneak into programs because the the school systems across the country most now don't involve, com include computer science in K to eight. Um, so we had this like evolution of brands or programs that we call them now. But all along, Ladies Learning Code was also the organization's name. And for many people, many reasons, you know, it wasn't the most inclusive way to speak to all the things that we did. You know, there were a lot of people, a lot of kids, or you know, just individuals in general who didn't even know that we offered all these other programs. And so we saw this huge opportunity. It had that kind of, how do we expand, clarify, strengthen, you know, the narrative from like a branding perspective? That was one thing. And then the second piece was we, we had some core team members uh, join our board actually some core people who saw the work that we were doing and kind of big visionaries were like what would this look like if you were going to you know transform education in Canada like that's what you're set we were set out to do like that's what we want you know to do we envision a Canada where 
everyone has a chance to harness technology and, and education is like a huge part of that um, traditional education. And so at the same time that we were having this like branding conversation, we were also having a conversation of like what would like an evolved mission or goal. And so those things really came together and led us to kind of evolve and clarify our organization as Canada Learning Code that runs all these different programs and to set out a big goal to teach 10 million Canadians over the next 10 years. So it kind of all came together at around the same time. And our hope is that, you know, if you look at a brand like a, a bucket, you only need a new like brand or new bucket if your other one is small or getting full. And so we saw this opportunity to have a bigger bucket with Canada Learning Code, more opportunity, more reach, things that we don't even know that exist yet. And so we saw again this like kind of timing to do that and to evolve so we can do more than we even know right now. Yeah. Question about culture specifically, yeah. selfishly. Yeah. So as an organization when you're starting it's really important to have things that are important to you. Mm -hmm. Values, things to say. Yeah. Um, as you've now scaled to 32 chapters, how do you keep cohesion mm -hmm. with all 32 chapters and mm -hmm. how far do you let people go in terms of creating their own subcultures? This is a very, like, I don't know if we've, I, like, I don't think that we've totally figured it out. So, you know, and this is kind of going back to my response around, I don't want to say like a lead, well, a leader's strengths, the organization's weakness in some ways. So the one thing that I've been super, super adamant about since day one is giving people the flexibility and freedom to do the things that they really want to do. I think that's where you add the most value is if, you know, you love people and culture stuff, just focus on that, not have to worry about like the recruiting or whatever it might be. And so in that way, our 32 chapters are very unique. We all, I think, have a set of core values. I mean, we've got them documented. They're in our space. They're screensavers. Like, we have those values. I think when we hire and bring people onto our team, like, we are looking for those values. So I feel like there is some consistency in, in what we're all doing. But, like, I think the beauty of the organization and I think what drives a lot of our, our team is that they can like carve out a space for themselves in the chapter. What we're kind of grappling with now is like how do you grow that, manage that, scale that, what happens when like that's not something I'm responsible for now, we've got a team. So that's something that we're trying to figure figure out. I actually have a meeting this afternoon about it, which is like what is an ideal structure? And, and that might be how we tackle it, is trying to put some guidance around, here's what we've seen across the country as like the right way to, like the right structure to run a, a chapter. And here's a way that you could do it a little bit differently. We'll support these, but there's still some flexibility within it. Um, so we're having to set a little bit more parameters around it, partly because we want to scale, but also because as chapters grow, not everyone can live in ambiguity, uncertainty in this like entrepreneurial culture. So we find people who have lots of entrepreneurial spirit or, you know, are community builders, but they like need, they want, need the structure of like how to operate. So it's coming from them as much as it is from us, which is we need a little bit. We're super happy to run with it once you've like set something out. So we're trying to figure that piece out. I don't know if you have thoughts, but. I mean, yeah, but it sounds like a good, yeah. good matchup of um, engaging your populations to mm -hmm. make a decision, mm -hmm. um, not having it come top down. Yeah. So that's about right. Yeah. It's staying ahead of it and internationalization and more simply. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Forever. And we always like talk about stuff where I tried as much as possible like with with teams and like be transparent that we don't know what we're doing like no, you know not that we don't know what we're doing but well sometimes I'm 
transparent about that but that we're gonna figure it out and like we might make some mistakes and you know we had a big team meeting on friday and that's exactly what i said which is like we don't even as senior leadership like we don't aim to know that this is the perfect way to do this thing like we need your feedback and, and input and you know like we've done our best effort we've gone out and sought out like all the sources and information that we can like we think this is pretty good but like in execution it might not be <laughs> like it we might have you know missed something so i think in that way like you know doing the best that you can but then being willing to like iterate fast is also important what are the three biggest lessons or three <coughs> things that maybe you'll be discussing in this meeting this afternoon about scaling to 32 countries so what if you're mm -hmm. talking to a new chapter head what are like the top three things you would say to them mm -hmm. about how to scale that community in their local area other than like do your thing you know one is like engage you know the community early on um partnerships are key so one of the things that we've always set out you know as we start new, in launch new chapters or we bring people on into chapters mostly when we start new ones is like a kind of condition of getting going or like the thing that will will be the trigger to start and to plan your first event is bringing partners to the table so you know, if they're financial, that's amazing because, you know, chapters would, would need money, but it doesn't have to be. Like, we just need evidence of community support. And there's, like, lots of reasons why that's kind of one of our, our challenges. And we'll work with our chapters to, to do that. But I think show us that there's some element of community support. You brought people together and that you're able to listen to community needs and have kind of an avenue to do that. I think something I maybe wouldn't necessarily t t uh, tell them because we've kind of set it out but some lesson for for growing and scaling is to think about scale before you're ready to scale so i think we did that to some extent but had no like idea how we would grow or again even that this would be a thing so build out processes that could, could hold up and when tested under scale so if you're you know if you're gonna do something like you know run an event like take the time to document it like at the beginning so you have a bit of a playbook for every time someone else wants to do it like take photos um maybe that's a third thing is like document stuff <laughs> maybe there's something i would do differently like we did document a lot <laughs> but not nearly enough about you know the experiences people in the programs those magic moments because those i think are the things that help preserve this element of culture and spirit and you know documenting key decisions i think that's another thing that we're grappling with as an org is why do we set our workshops a certain way or why did we decide to have a four to one ratio of mentors like you know that's been something that we've done for you know six and a half years but there was a, some reasoning behind it there was some research behind it and like these are the kind of key things that that are the spirit of of our org that you need to preserve as you close. one of the things that i would speak to very quickly as to what you said about having some kind of structure giving them resources to scale almost mm -hmm. so when i first took on like the canadian side of things for she works which we're here for today yeah. they actually like created these pretty comprehensive docs and they made me like write down the first 24 speakers i would had over i would have over the next two years potential sponsors that I got like soft yeses from and that kind of stuff and I feel like that has actually really helped yeah. right yeah and it might seem like you know maybe you haven't even got started you have an idea and you want to jump with it and like it may seem like so far off that you might scale or grow but it will come quicker than you think and even if it doesn't I think there's also some value in documenting and getting your thoughts out on paper or podcast or like whatever medium makes sense for you like I think there's some value in having to like position yourself the work that you want to do your organization so it's like the last thing you want to do and it's it's totally like 
the auditor brain in me that documents and like writes stuff and keeps things organized but it is a really valuable trait to have later um, do you get overwhelmed ever yeah yeah by all this stuff how do you take care of yourself um, That's something i selfishly want to know too i think just keeping active and busy i'm one of those people like i just love building things like i find it so much fun to do what i do every day like it's just the best but you have to kind of step away and do other things too so whatever it might be like for me i spend a lot of time with family you know it might be i mean cyber monday shopping online i took a break to do that <laughs> like you know whatever whatever it is. i mean this is my outlet so i have a developer barbie instagram account do you want to talk a little bit about developer barbie well how did it start i chopped her hair off so no i mean this is like just a funny thing now that i've like for a year and a bit kept going developer barbie was actually a thing that Bar martel came out with so i purchased her and i wanted her look a little bit more like me so my team actually i have a whole bag of clothing that they made me Someone on my team literally made a bunch of clothing that like resemble my own clothing. It's like a creative outlet actually. So part of the work that we're doing is really about changing the narrative of who belongs in tech. And that's just not just women, but it, you know, giving people a wide range of people that, that they could aspire to or be like in tech. And so, you know, got started, developer Barbie was kind of my, I don't know, like mini me, I guess, just to show people different sides of tech. And I think she's got more followers now than, than I do, which is, cool I'm, I want a sponsorship with Mattel one day but you know it's just again a way of changing the the narrative or at least my attempt at it and then you know I don't know like I really love taking photos and staging her and bringing her to events and so if anyone wants to get a selfie with developer with Barbie, Barbie she's um, cool yeah she's pretty cool but it's like um, an outlet right I think yeah. that that is just the, the way that I choose to spend my time when did you actually start off growing your different chapters so you know, some of the explanations were kind of high level now that you have many chapters. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious to know, like, the very first chapter that you mm -hmm. grew, how did that go kind of at the micro level? How mm -hmm. did that work, like, in terms of all the things that you had to do and what worked and what didn't work? So our first chapter was almost exactly a year after we launched our first workshop in Vancouver. And we basically, at that point, had run maybe a dozen events. So we had, like, the idea for and how to run an event pretty down pat and we we had some resources actually laura on our team one of our founders too she was joking a couple weeks ago that like i kept talking at the time like about we should have a best practices document like we should have one and everyone's like okay well and like you know later come came back a couple days later with this like best practices document but that's true like we just started writing out all these different scenarios or like things that could happen frequently asked questions it's nice in our way line of work like in terms of running workshops that they're pretty similar workshop to workshop the craziest things will happen always but you can't plan for that all types of technical issues learner variation like so much so much will happen but like you can really optimize for the bare, the bones of a workshop so we just documented it we were also adamant and we still are that you know we being kind of headquarters or at the time the founding team would be at those first events. So we physically went to Vancouver and we went and spent some time with our chapter lead there, Taya, and then we kind of ran in parallel the workshop with her. So gave her room and flexibility, but you know, before the opening, we would talk about what we wanted that to be about. Mm -hmm. And then we debrief after. And so we really tried to take this model of, you know, pretty hands-on support 
And through that, we learned a ton of things, right? Like, I mean, she had done stuff differently. She'd done a ton of community events. Vancouver, more similar to Toronto, but we learned a lot as we started going to smaller communities. Fredericton or Moncton or St. John's, you know, like it's, it's very different. Our expectations were different, you know, and there was actually kind of an interesting thing is we, when we started these first few chapters, they were in pretty large populated areas. And so we'd say, you know, find a venue for 60, 80 people. Like that's how big our workshops were in Toronto. But then you get to Fredericton and like they feel like complete failures when they can't find 15 people or a venue that holds that many. But for Fredericton, that's totally success. Like that's an amazing turnout relative to their population. So we learn a lot about, you know, letting our chapter leads also help drive what success looks like for them, the community. So like even though we have these templates and best practices, like we've definitely modified them to be more inclusive of the communities that we're in and, you know, that flexibility, which is why I think listening to your community and your community leaders is so important because we, d- we don't really know what that community is like in Fredericton. Like they, they do. So mm-hmm. we've had to shuffle things that way. Did you ever have conflicts with your team where you're like, I want to do this or the founding team is like, we want to do this. And the team is like, no. And they want to do something and you're like, no. Yeah. So we were four women as founders and the first year, like, again, all of us did this as a side. So we were lucky in many ways that we had different like things that we were responsible for. So there's always like, you know, conflict or people see things in different ways, but we were actually pretty fortunate that it wasn't like too much of an issue. We do for our chapter, our chapter community, because they're just like rock stars. They often want to run and we are sitting back here seeing the larger picture and there are times where they can totally just run with a thing but then there are other times where that might conflict with a bigger plan so we're always having to manage expectations there i feel like yeah. this is a sign for us to wrap up yes. because people have started like it's like almost 10. okay last question okay what is it like to be buds with Justin Trudeau? Because oh you hang out with him quite a bit. <laughs> Not really. He's super tall. He's very tall. Very tall. Like, very, very tall. No, I mean, I think that was... Um, so Justin Trudeau coded with us last year around this time. Coolest thing. I mean, I, a year prior, I was like... I told my team at a retreat, I was like, you know what? Next year, we're going to have our prime minister code with us. And we did, which was awesome. I, I actually... It was like my BHAG, my big, hairy, audacious goal. I was like, I'm going to throw this out and, like, let it sit. We made... Do people use Slack here? Yeah. So we made like a Justin Trudeau's like little emoji and like it was a joke for a year and then all of a sudden I wasn't allowed to tell anybody about it because their security is so tight. But for us it was more about this like high level support for the work that we're mm-hmm. doing. So that's really what I think helped change the narrative for us. So it was, yeah, like he was cool. It was awesome to have him co, but more importantly, like our prime minister and the federal government thinks what we're doing and the work of so many others is, is important. So Mm -hmm. for our team, it was like amazing to just have that after five and a half years that, you know, legitimization of the work that we're doing. So yeah, it was cool. Awesome. But he's very tall. <laughs> well, he's not he's slender, so it's like very <laughs> noticeable. It's like it is striking. Is there, is there a question? Is there was there something you really wanted to say that I didn't ask you about? Hopefully, there's some kind of Q 
key learnings there. I think you have to think about how it applies in your own realm. I think really having a problem that you want to solve that you feel really passionate about, I think is what keeps you going. I think don't be afraid to ask for help. That has been a huge strength in has allowed us to build an organization based on so many people's perspectives. I think that's one thing that I always felt nervous about is like, if you ask for help, it's a sign of weakness or that you don't know the answers, but it's, it's not. And so many people want to help and I think it's also a really valuable way to engage people. Like it's, it may serve your, your bigger purpose, you know, running an organization, but someone in Fredericton whose perspectives get to be incorporated and, and can really shape their community is so valuable for them too. So I think just don't be afraid to engage people, ask for help. That would be my Perfect. parting words. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, this is really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Right Sleep, an award-winning promotional products agency located in the heart of Toronto. We believe in the power of branded merchandise to create emotional connections with brands. So connect with us online at rightsleep.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Right Sleep.